so here we go. Uh, all right, everybody, welcome. Welcome, Peter. I'm Doug. This Greetings. week, we are going to tackle a tough one. Uh, this is uh, our podcast on David Lynch's 1984 science fiction epic, Dune, uh, the first version of Dune to ever reach the screen. Uh, and I believe only Lynch's third movie after Eraserhead uh, and uh, The Elephant Man. Correct me if I'm wrong. No, I think that's right, because De Laurentiis saw him, uh, saw The Elephant Man, and then tried to recruit him. I guess he was pretty hot property back early on. Well, I, th- I think that he wasn't Lynch. a hot property from, from Elephant Man. I think he was a hot property from... So, I mean, he was not from Eraserhead. It was really from Elephant Man that really caught right. a lot of zeitgeist. It had Anthony Hopkins, and I think, isn't John Hurt the Elephant Man? Yeah, John Hurt's the Elephant Man. I watched Eraserhead in high school, and I saw it once, and if I'm lucky, I'll, I'll never see it again as long as I live. It was a nice, easy uh, watch. <laughs> yeah, sort of light, light rom-com. All of his movies are like that, including The Elephant Man and, ironically, Dude. <laughs> also not an easy watch in some ways. Um, have you seen uh, the Sci-Fi Channel's version of Dune? No. It was made in 2000, right? I, did, I didn't right. see it. I, I kind of forgot they made it or I would have watched it. Um, it's, it's, it's a very, very different uh, take on uh, Dune. So there's there's really there's two sci-fi miniseries. There's the first one that's over three nights, uh, that's Dune. Whereas the second miniseries, made a year or two later, also covered three nights, and that that covers Dune Messiah and Children of Dune. Um, but, so they uh, did the uh, the whole thing. I guess. So they they went well. They out did further. the first three of the Herbert books. Right. No one's no one's done God Emperor of Dune, Heretics of Dune, or Chapter House Dune. Um, but I actually That's all saw right. Chapter this... House doesn't even count. No, Chapter House is good, but anyway, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Uh, the, the, the six books by Frank Herbert are quite good. The ones written by his son and and uh, Kevin J. Anderson. I'm less. I thought fond Chapter of. House he didn't finish. Uh, I believe he did. If, if I'm pretty sure he did. If he didn't finish it, that's news to me. But it's possible he died yeah, around remember. when it came out. Um. So again, this is um, David Lynch's 1984 Dune, which I actually saw uh, in the theater, and I had um, we I had attempted to read Dune once when I was I think 12, and I couldn't. It was just a little too much for me. And then when I was 13, I reattempted Dune and was able to read it. And I probably, without hyperbole, I probably read Dune 20 times at least in its entirety. And more in pieces. Hmm. Uh, I've spent I a lot of times. I've spent a lot of I've spent a lot of time and effort on on Dune. By the way, your your um your ticket when you saw it in the theater accounted for about one point five percent of the the revenues. <laughs> the gross, right? <laughs> yeah, Frank Herbert uh, and David Lynn sent me a signed thank you note. That's um, awesome. But you know what's interesting is it sh- it shows you too. Like I mean, again. We're going to talk broadly here. I mean, this is a hard, this is a hard movie to take to the screen for a, a lot of reasons. Not not least of which is that half of the book only takes place in people's heads, in the sense that half of the book you're really just listening to people's thoughts, and that's a hard thing to convey in film, let alone to convey in a two-hour film. You know, you know when when they tried the Dune miniseries. Uh, in 2000, I think that, you know, they had, you know, almost triple the amount of time to pull off this novel, and it was hard. Right, and, and um, Jodorowsky's uh, planned film, about which, you know, we'll talk, but they made a, they made a documentary a few years ago. Right. His, his screenplay was 14-hour film. Right. <laughs> Although, you know, I have to tell you, I think that... Uh, uh, Jodorowsky's Dune, the documentary about his failed attempt to make Dune. It was it was the most inspiring film I saw that entire year. Like, like it, I was just in awe of him. I hadn't really known a lot about him. A yeah, lot of his either. movies aren't in English. Uh, but I, I literally came away from that like deeply inspired. My wife is also a, a Dune fan, and 
I rented Yodorowsky's Dune uh, from the Red Box, I think. And I remember I watched the first 10 minutes and I stopped it and I, I grabbed my wife and I said, you must see this. And she was hey. like, I'm busy. I don't have time. And I said, no, no, no. You must see this. Like it was so impressive. And we just watched it straight through and just kind of couldn't turn away. So listen, you know, everybody, basically anybody listening to this is basically a total, you know, dork. Um, just by definition, right? So you have to tell everyone how you found a female that likes Dune. Right. I know. Ironically. So when, when my wife and I were still dating, she had heard me talk about Dune many times. And we were, we were in New Jersey at the time when we were walking down the street in, uh, it was either Weehawken or Hoboken, believe it or not. And there was a used bookstore that had a, a, a rack of books out on the street, you know, and there was a copy of Dune, and I bought it for her there, and then she read it. So she's read the first three. I don't think she's read past the first three, but she's read the first three, and she's read Dune a couple of times. Yeah, so, like, my wife and I can have detailed conversations about Princess Irulan. Um, <laughs> so, um, so, again, you know, not only is this uh, Lynch's third film, this is Kyle MacLachlan's first movie. Right, which is, I mean, it's amazing that they gave essentially a neophyte actor the lead in this film. And what's the? You is know, it true the story? Like he was a big fan, and you know, I sort of vaguely remember hearing that, but I didn't research it. Kyle MacLachlan has said publicly that he liked or had read Dune, but I, it's hard to know how much that's real, or it's just what you say when you're doing PR for your movie. Do you know what right. I'm saying? That's I don't what know. I wonder. By the way, a lot know. of this podcast, I'm going to interview you because you you're like uh, you you know you've spent a lot of time. No, thinking that's about fine. Dune. That's fine. You know, and I kind of feel like you know it's hard to view this movie in isolation. You have to kind of view this movie in the context of the books and the context of you know what we've learned about Yudorowsky's attempt and what we saw in John Harrison's version of Dune and in the the subsequent Sci-Fi Channel miniseries. So. And I'm not a gamer, but there's also a bunch of Dune sci-fi video games. So like, you kind of have to view it in that context in the sense that a lot of people have sort of like, you know, put energy and time into trying to bring this book to, to life in various formats. And I think that, you know, I think like all of the versions of Dune, like this is sort of both a, a success and a failure. Like I think the things that Lynch gets right, he really gets right. And the things that Lynch gets wrong are, they're jarring and they're, they're grating to Dune fans. And I kind of can, I can watch this movie and, and, you know, feel that all in the span of, you know, one scene, like they got it right. Oh, they got it wrong. You know, like mm -hmm. it's tricky, you know? And, and again, I I've said before in this podcast and I'll say again, if you're just going to do the book straight, don't make the movie. Like if you're going to transpose the material to a different medium, it's okay to do it different and it's okay to make changes. So I'm not, I'm not criticizing them for making changes or not doing exactly like the book, but just some of the changes in the way they pull it off. I think some work and some don't. And like, for example, I think the biggest change in the, the, in Lynch's movie versus the book is that in the book, the weirding way is essentially the Benny Gesserit style of fighting that Jessica uh, teaches Paul as a child in the Fremen. Whereas here they sort of right, mechanize like, kind of it. like it's, it's basically like a martial art of some type. Right. It's sort of like a, a martial Super art. Martial very, art. very fast. Right. Um, it's like and, martial and for, art to the 10th power. Right. But it, whereas in here, like the weirding way is sort of interwoven with these machines that allow them to use sound as a weapon. None of which is in the book beyond the voice being, sort of a way that they can use sound to control people. But right. you certainly can't, you know, like the idea the that they have a weapon module. that can blows up a, a rock pyramid um, just by yelling at it. Right. Uh, that's a pure uh, Lynchian invention. And then the other thing is the way the Baron is portrayed in this is sort of like covered in sores. None of that is in the book. I mean, the Baron is supposed to be fat, and he's he's maintained by suspensers because he can't really carry his bulk, and that's in the book and the movie. But the sort of the image that he is just—he's not just a fat figure; like he's he's even beyond a grotesque figure in this movie. Yeah, and the way that too that the the Harkonnens are 
they're sort of like universally vulgar. They're disgusting you know? and evil. They're not just, and, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to uh, sympathize with their point of view ever. Right. And, and in the, and in, in the movie, for example, the Baron is portrayed as sort of mad, whereas in the book, the Baron is extremely smart. He's also nuts, but not in the same sort of over-the-top way right? Uh, as in the movie. Uh, and again, like, you know, there's little throwaway scenes in the movie that make not just the Baron, but all of the Harkonnens, it's just extremely over-the-top. Like, like, for example, the scene where the Baron's nephew, Raban, rips a cow's tongue out and eats it raw. Hmm. You know, like, that's not from the book, but that's okay. Um, I so had I'll that tell for you, lunch, as a matter of fact. <laughs> so listen, get, listen give me the... rye. <laughs> you can't get good mustard over here, though. Um, what? No, the... Um, so do you want the summary? Yeah, give me the summary of this, like, um, in, you know, 5,000 pages of a messianic science fiction story in one paragraph. So uh, in one paragraph or less, uh, Dune is the story essentially of Paul, Matri- Paul Atreides, who is the son of a duke who is uh, murdered in a coup engineered by a rival house in the far distant future with the aid of uh, the emperor and the story of how he redeems himself and his family, and along the way discovers that he may in fact be the Messiah uh, to the indigenous people, the Fremen on the desert planet of Arrakis. How's that for? That's about as quick as I could do it. That's pretty good. And the um, other, the only other thing that is sort of integral to the story is that Arrakis is especially important because. The spice, which is mined on the planet, allows for the fundamental aspect of the society at that time, which is travel, is uh, is long distance, you know, warp style, inter, right. you know, planetary right. travel. Interplanetary travel and sort of like development of like human abilities. Like it's, it's hinted heavily in the movie and throughout the books that lots of people use the spice for different things. The spice right. is essentially a metaphor for oil. Right. The, idea that oil. The, the entire economy is, is based on one substance. Right. And it also um, comes out of the desert kind of like oil frequently does. I think, and I think also, I guess since we're still doing the bad before we get to the good, I think the most, I guess perhaps the most glaring and worst offense in the entire movie is that it rains at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, which is such a fantastic departure from the book. Uh, you know, in the book, it is, and in the books, it's stated that, you know, the transformation of Dune is expected to take hundreds of thousands of years. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, the movie spans a, a roughly a two to three year period. Uh, and at the end of the book, the end of the movie, we see a torrential downpour, <laughs> uh, with, which really, uh, I think a lot of Dune fans were left vomiting in the aisle of the theater when they saw that. You know, it's funny because my father had read um, the Dune books when we saw this. When we walked out, my dad was like, I don't think it rained in that book. You know, like that was like, mm-hmm. my, that was really what stuck with my dad. Like, ah, that, that wasn't how it went. Um, but I think, they, I think that Lynch gets a lot of stuff right in this movie. And for example, um, one of the things that he, he does well and that he does better than, for example, the John Harrison version in 2000 is these people don't feel like us. And, you know, uh, at the beginning, we discover that it's the year 10,191, but that's not 10,191 A.D. That's 10,191 A.G. That's after the founding of the guilds. This is who knows how many thousands of years in the future from us. And one thing that the Lynch movie really feels like is that, like I said, they are not us. Mm-hmm. Like these people bear no resemblance to current earthbound humans. They have different culture. They have a different religion. Uh, you know, they, they view uh, the universe through very, very different terms. And for example, I don't know if you noticed this, but this is a computerless society. Mm-hmm. You know, these people have space travel and all manner of technology. And this is a computerless society, and there is not a lot of science fiction that does not feature computers. And it's not really explained in the movie, whereas in the books, uh, it is made abundantly clear that um, they don't use computers because computers were used uh, in various contexts in the past to enslave people 
uh, and they they have this quote from their Bible in the books, which they call the Orange Catholic Bible, that thou shalt not make a machine in the image of a human mind. So for them, a computer is a sin. And that's one of the reasons that, like, all these schools have arisen, the Bene Gesserit, uh, the Spacing Guild, the Mentats. The Mentats you know, people, right. people have to develop their minds because they are culturally forbidden from using computers. And the other way that they, I think, they make them different than us is and is like for example the Atreides like they feel like royalty you know right. like when you see Francesca Annis even though she's the concubine or the way that Jurgen Prock now portrays Leto you know like these people feel like royalty and they are addressed and spoken to and interacted with as if they are royalty because in fact within the context of the story they are and and you you get that sense whereas when you watch the 2000 version it just feels like they're a bunch of 20th century actors on a soundstage. You know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? With a painted backdrop. Whereas here you feel like you're seeing just a different world in a different time. And they look different. They have hairstyles that are different. They dress differently. They interact with their world in a different way. And like, for example, one way that the movie really conveys that they are royalty is the scene where before uh, the before the Max von Sydow character, Liet Kynes, takes Paul and his father and their their men out into the desert for the first time he goes to adjust leto's still suit fittings and he touches the royal person and gurney halleck and the atreides men they are on him in a second mm-hmm. you know because he touches the royal person you know and like that's a small touch that doesn't require any special effects or even really dialogue and it conveys to the viewer they are not us as i like to say well, I think Lynch is good at doing weird and unfamiliar. You know, he lives in the kind of weird zone in many of his pictures, right? And then this is this is right. no exception. And he's and it's sort of like related to sort of the David Cronenberg style of body horror. Like he's not as sh- he's not afraid to show people being disfigured or mm-hmm. tortured. You know, um, let's talk about just Dune as a book for a second because. Dune is a, I mean, if you look up epic in the science fiction dictionary, Dune, that's Dune, right? There's the prototypical example of that. It's very intricate. And, you know, what makes Dune so special? And it really is sort of beloved, right? I mean, it's one of the ultimate cult. It's my favorite book of all time. Following. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's way, certainly way up there for me, especially, you know, certainly, especially with science fiction. I mean, it, it achieves something that other science fiction books don't achieve, like a level of detail, a level, the ability to create a an parallel universe, right? right. It, it, right. It, a, a level of, it paints a, a, an entirely different universe so effectively. I mean, maybe in a way, it, Tolkien kind of did that, right? So Tolkien, and you, you could also say George R. R. Martin with the Song of Ice and Fire books, the Game of Thrones books. Yeah, I didn't read those actually, but but yeah, I mean, it, it's not often that somebody can can do that, right? And and it's not just a matter of imagination. It's it's there's some sort of pixie dust that he's able to pull off right right and and the way that the world feels so integrated and the characters seem so at home in it you know one other thing too that he does in the book that i think helps is you know he's not talking to you the reader Mm -hmm. like he's telling the story but there's very little defined and you know i've given dune as a gift to several people over the years and i always say to them like at about page 30 you're gonna want to hit me in the head with a hammer (laughs) Because nothing is defined, and, and you're like, what are they talking about? And I can't follow the book. And then right around page 50 or 70, you know, you, you've learned enough of the, the language and the terminology that you can start to follow the story. And there's a glossary in the back. But, like, it's hard. Like, the book is, the book is work. You yeah. know, two, two people independently describe the book to me as reading scripture. You know, like, mm-hmm. you only read a few pages at a time, and you've you got a mullet for a little while. Well, he's, um, and he's always he's he's constantly quoting this his own scripture that he makes up in the book, right? And and most of the chapters are introduced by Irulan, who is who is uh, describing the events that you're about to read in the past tense, mm-hmm. so making the book even more complicated. I mean, um, it's layer on layer, 
you know, and, but, but in a good way. And like, yeah. you know, I mean, like, you know, it's funny because he, he does something too, that a lot of sci-fi doesn't do a lot of sci-fi is, uh, you know, places you'd like to go. Like I'd like to be aboard Captain Kirk's enterprise. You know what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. that's a place I'd like to go. Like, yeah. I'd love to hang out with Han and Chewie and play a little chess back there in the, in the millennium Falcon. I don't, you mm-hmm. know, I don't know if I want to live on Alderaan, but you know, like there's a lot of places in the Star Wars universe I'd be kind of curious to go, but like I'll pass on the Duneverse. Like <laughs> it's not a good place to go. And like, like I don't want to go there. Like there's a lot of bad things happen there. And a lot of innocent people get killed for no reason. Like it's interesting that he sets it in a, in a sort of a dark and complex universe. Um, it's brutal. It is brutal. Uh, the cast, I think we've got to say a word about the cast. I mean, who isn't in this movie? Um, and you know, like, you know, some of these are brave casting choices. Like I think, I think Jurgen Prock now as Leto, um, Tom McLaughlin first acting role, Sean Young, I guess was a hot property then coming off of Blade Runner. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Ken McMillan, uh, is, uh, the Baron, um, Linda Hunt. They squeezed yeah. Linda Hunt was in every movie I think made in the mid eighties. In one yeah. way or another. Um, uh, who else? Brad Dourif, who appears on Star Trek Voyager some years later. Um, Patrick as, Stewart. As, as Lon Suter. Right. Patrick, Patrick Stewart in interviews is very embarrassed about this film. Like, Everybody he did is. Not en- he did not enjoy doing this. Uh, Dean Stockwell as Dr. Huey. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, one of my personal uh, sort of cult favorites is Virginia Madsen as Irulan. Does a great job. Max von Sydow. I mean, who, Jose Ferrer plays the mm-hmm. Emperor. Who's not in this movie? Oh, don't forget Sting. Yeah, but you know, it's funny because Sting is featured very prominently in the ads and the posters, but he's, he's really only in about three scenes. And he has right. very little dialogue. Right, like, he doesn't do much. But it's a cameo. You know, it that's is, a real, it, it's a real cameo. Right. Whereas in the books, you know, Sting's character, Fade Rautha, is a much larger player. Um, and, you know, like, I think that it, it, you're going to, this is probably the only time in my life I'm going to say that I like something by Toto, but the music is good in this. You know, <laughs> I mean, Toto does a good job with the music and it works well. And then you've got Brian Eno, who does this sort of prophecy theme that's woven throughout the movie, and Carla Rabaldi does the worm effects and the practical effects in this hold up very well. Although I don't know if you noticed some of the effect scenes are incomplete. Like some of the scenes are just plain not done. Mm. Uh, they ran out of time. They ran out of money. And for example, the, the, the top there's the, the aircraft that they have, were supposed to have uh, flapping wings and they just don't like, they just have no wings essentially. Like mm-hmm. they're just, you just see the cockpit flying by no visible or discernible means of propulsion. It's because they, they couldn't add it in. Um, it's also worth noting, have you ever seen, uh, the three and a half hour version of the David Lynch film? No, but I wanted to talk about, uh, you know, final cut and all that stuff. And, you know, so the, the theatric, you know, version he's talked about as that the Laurentuses did not have, they had final cut. He didn't. And so right. he was, and again, you could see why he didn't have final cut. It's his third movie. They're not going to give him that. Of course. But, you know, the question is, if he did, would it have been better, right? I didn't see the – is the longer one really his or is that just somebody else's edit? The longer one is interesting. Um, you know, it was funny because I heard about the longer one for about a year or two before I saw it. And then in the mid-90s, uh, I saw in the TV listings, back when the TV listing was printed in the Sunday paper – you would hang on to it all week. Wait, what's a paper? That, I don't, <laughs> it was this uh, this object made out of uh, ground Dead up tree. parts of trees and <laughs> coated in ink that got on your fingertips. Anyway, we digress. But I remember seeing in the TV guide that Dune was going to show, and it was it was scheduled for five hours. And I was like, hmm, how could it be scheduled for five hours? And I thought it was a some sort of typo. And I sent my my VCR, which is another forgotten technology that worked pretty well. And I set my VCR and I just hit record as it started and I left and I went to work and I came home that night and I had recorded for six hours and they had turned the three and a half roughly hour version, uh, extended version to about five hours with commercials. So the, the, the long version has a, 
It features about a 15-minute introduction to the Duneverse that's narrated not by um, Princess Irulan, but by a, just a male voice over what is essentially production artwork that tells the history of the, the Duneverse, uh, explains who all the characters are, who all the planets are, uh, how the spice works in much greater detail, and it contains a lot of scenes that never ever made it into the final. There's really much more uh, of Paul's time among the Fremen. And for example, the novel is broken into three books. Like Dune itself is broken into three books. The first book is their arrival on Arrakis uh, and their uh, defeat at the hands of the Harkonnen. The second book is Paul in the desert with the Fremen. And the third book is really the end of Paul's time in the desert and how he uh, captures the Imperial throne. Whereas in the two-hour version, the middle of the three books is literally done in about 60 seconds in a montage where they go, Paul and Chani's love grew. The right. Fremen fought the Harkonnens and made great stride. Like, I, my wife and I watched this together last week, and I said, oh, that's the whole middle in like 60 <laughs> seconds. Like, they just cut it all out. Right. And for example... Um, Paul, in their defense, though, um, they had to because it had a lot of Sean Young in it. And when, they, when, well, they watch, and, <laughs> when they watch it, they were like, oh, this is, we got to get right. rid of this. Well, and the other thing, too, you know, like it, it was a lot of details about the Fremen life and, and life in the siege and Paul's relationship with Stilgar. And for example, completely absent in the cinematic version is that, you know, Paul has another wife in the book besides Chani. Um, and when Paul is first found by the Fremen, he has to kill, he, he's tested in, in armed combat, uh, and he bests another Fremen named Jameis, which is a, a pivotal scene in the book because it's the first time Paul kills, and the Fremen see that this child is able to defeat one of their best warriors. That scene is in the director's cut, and in the book, uh, Paul becomes responsible for Jameis' wife, uh, and I believe his children. And his wife is named Hara. And, and the only thing that survives of Hara in the two-hour version, whereas she's featured in the three-and-a-half-hour version, the only thing that survives of Hara in this movie essentially is one or two shots. Most notably, at the end of the movie, when the rain falls, Hara gets about two seconds on the screen, and she's soaked in rain, and she's looking up at the sky in wonder. But that's essentially Paul's other wife besides Chani in the Fremen world, and all of that is cut out. Um, mm -hmm. But but so it's interesting. It's worth watching. You, I think you is can it better? watch it on. It's longer. I mean, and, <laughs> right? I mean, that's the thing. You know, and I don't even know who made that. I mean, who that made that was one? Put together by the studio, and um, Lynch has taken his name off of it. It's got the the Universal and Alan Smithy film on it. Mm. Um, so, and, so it wasn't even him. It was basically they were trying to the know, studio like, put it together. Right, right. So the studio lost a lot of money on this movie, and the movie flopped. And um, not only did it flop, but it was one of those kind of hated type of bad press, bad word of mouth flops. Right. Well, so and, they, I, and again, you know, you could imagine if you were, you know, Joe Sixpack, and you, you know walk into this thing on a Friday night after a long day at work, you're just going to be like, what the? What? Right. <laughs> I this picked the wrong movie. Well, that's the problem. I mean, that's why it flopped. Because if you're that guy, you're in trouble. And, if and you're, it's totally inaccessible. Right. And, and, the, and revolting. Right. And if you're, um, conversely, if you're the opposite of that and you're a dorky Dune fan that read the book 17 times, uh, you're also going to be disappointed. Right, because it rains. <laughs> <laughs> it rains in the weirding module and the, just the whole right. thing and, you know, a lot of it. And um, it, it didn't but, find itself yeah. an audience. But so, you know, but I guess so the studio tried to make some money with the longer one. I understand they were trying to recover. But I wonder what, like, did what it did Lynch... Besides the the small like the atmosphere being strange and and otherworldly like we just talked about, did he did he he did he didn't really succeed in the overall sense at all, did he? Like he, you I get the sense. Think, well, I don't even know. Even if I he could have edited it's, it, I, it's hard to say that this is a success or a failure because I think it's some of both. I mean, he brought Dune to the big screen, right? right. I mean, you know, Yodorowsky labored time. for years and got nothing. 
Right, right. The 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 mini series from two thousand was on cable. Um, um, right. I mean, that's a much smaller production, right? So, and, and again, the the like I said, the things that he does well really stand out. And for example, all of my favorite parts of the film take place in the first maybe forty minutes, like the scenes on Kaladin before they go to Arrakis, the journey to Arrakis, the scenes on Arrakis up to and including the invasion. I mean, it's really well done. And and it, it just it starts to get too ragged around the edges, too convoluted and too gross as the movie goes on. And and I think by the end a lot of people just want it out of the theater. By the way, I forgot before I forget, I've always got to tie it back to other podcasts. Did you recognize Duncan Idaho? Yeah, um, that's Richard Jordan, aka right. Francis Seven from Logan's from Run. Logan's Run, that's right. I would have to bring it back to Star Trek or Logan's Run if I can in some way. Or the other. It's hard to bring everything back to Logan's Run, though. So this is one of your few. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is a, this is a rare occasion. Um, um, you so, know, and you know, the ending is the ending is hard to follow. The ending moves very very quickly. And like, for example, you haven't seen Irulan since the first 10 minutes of the movie. And then Paul marries her at the end. And you're, you know, again, if you don't, if you can't follow that, and a lot of people couldn't follow that because it's done so quickly, you're, what? <laughs> you know, although, although again, I, I've said it before and I'll say it again. Uh, Virginia Madsen is absolutely beautiful in this. Mm-hmm. Um. I saw an interesting interview with her on, on YouTube, by the way. She basically uh, had very little experience. She knew nothing about acting. She was overjoyed to be given that sort of long camera-in-the-face intro scene because it gave her a chance to have a lot of on-screen speaking that she otherwise wouldn't have had. And she reflects very positively on the making of the film because she felt like Lynch was very kind and helpful to her as a junior actress. Mm-hmm. It's sort of interesting to hear her talk about it whereas for example like i said patrick stewart looks back on this as an extremely negative experience and kyle mclaughlin is extremely loyal to lynch and mclaughlin essentially will only say good things about this movie right and he um, went on he went on to have quite a quite a good career you know after right this. and some of that career with lynch i mean he yeah. did blue twin velvet peaks, he right. twin peaks right and you know he's also um, Charlotte's uh, husband on Sex in the City and a million other movies he's been in. Um, but you know, it's also like I said. I mean, you can't say all. You can't talk about the good without talking about the bad, like we're doing. And again, I remember when the two thousand version came out. Um, you know, that's also a success and a failure. Like that is much more detail oriented. It has a lot more time to focus on the intricacies of Paul's time among the Fremen and their culture. Uh, but that movie, I think, suffers too in the sense that even though it costs more money than Lynch's production, it looks cheaper. Um, and uh, believe it or not, William Hurt is uh, cast as Leto, and he's, he's incredibly miscast, and he looks deeply uncomfortable in the role. Hmm. Um, and it's described over and over and over in the books that the, the Atreides are, are dark of hair and skin. Uh, and, you know, that's not William Hurt. And Paul in the, in the 2000 version is played by Alec Newman, who is, you could call him, you know, at best brown haired, but he's essentially a blonde. So the people don't really look the way you kind of envision them looking. Mm-hmm. Um, but the 2000 version is not bad either. And also it makes some strange choices with how they do stuff. And it has a lot of Eastern European actors. So there's some strange accents in the movie. I think mm-hmm. they filmed it in Eastern Europe to save money, but it, you know, it's, it's not a bad movie and it's a completely watchable take on, on the Dune saga. I have to say it's been a really long time since I've seen this, this movie, the 84, um, Lynch version. And it wasn't quite as bad as I remembered it because probably because I'm much further from the book at this point than I was, right. you know, when, when we were uh, high school age, when the thing came out and um, I, I think, you know, it, look, it's, it's not great, but I remember I was one of the offended uh, Dune fans when he came out 
I'm not an offended Dune fan anymore. Right, right. And I, and now maybe you can watch it more as just a piece of a piece of film. Right. And so, you know, I don't think overall it's, it's, uh, it's atrocious. Like I remember at the time truly being offended, but I I just, a lot of, you know, it's funny. A lot of the best dialogue comes straight from the book. Like there's Mm -hmm. a lot of lines that are lifted directly from the book that are some some of the most effective scenes. And some of the worst stuff is where they get furthest from the book and they're just sort of making stuff up, which again, I don't mind if they want to do it different, but just don't do it badly. I wonder how they made the decisions they made when they departed, like the weirding modules and changing the weirding way to an actual, just simply a weapon, uh, essentially. Um, right. A technologically as based to, weapon. As opposed to a martial art. Right. As opposed to some strange, um, secret, some strange, powerful martial art. Um, you, you know, I wonder how they decided to do that and how they decided to stress what they stressed like the first act of the movie and eliminate the virtually eliminate the Fremen from the movie, except as um, victors at the end of the movie. That's really right. their, their main role is to, is just the Fremen. They're, serve they're as Paul's a, army. Right. They, they serve to be, that's all they serve. They serve as that. They become Paul's army and that they're underestimated, you know, that, um, uh, you know, there, there's more of them. There's uh, more of them than they expect, and they're they they can become a rebel army, and then that that's what they become, and that's all there is. Um, but I wonder how they decided those things, and I, I wonder how it went down, and how much of that's in the screenplay, in Lynch's screenplay. How much of it is in was changed after by the uh producer the laurentis yeah. yeah and i imagine the screenplay is probably online most screenplays are online if you hunt far enough and wide you know lynn you know it's funny though because lynch is not really a sci-fi guy and you know he turned down directing return of the jedi to make this i know that that's fascinating to me that i didn't know that till just i just read it just recently that he that he was offered Return of the Jedi. I wonder how, who made that decision. Like, who would you know? Who would think about giving him Return of the Jedi after seeing? And, and what Elephant kind of Man? crazy person would turn down directing a Star Wars sequel? Well, maybe he didn't feel like he'd have as much control over the material, though he didn't in this in the end either. I don't know. How you know, it's crazy funny too because he if he, he, I'd be curious to see David Lynch do Return of the Jedi. Oh, I would. Know. I would like to see if the if he would have like um he wouldn't have made it i mean because once lucas started getting involved again with the ewoks and you know well, they, they would have he would he would have quit or he would have been they would have strangled each other but to flip it over like the you know if you subtract out the ewoks a lot of the the meat of return of the jedi is actually more up lynch's alley in the sense that the sort of strange love triangle that includes a brother and a sister the the father aspect of Vader and the sort of the grotesqueness of the Emperor. You know, you could imagine that the Emperor might have come out looking more like Baron Harkonnen. Uh, <laughs> he already looked pretty gross. Right, but you know what I'm saying? Like and, and maybe Lynch would have had the wisdom that Richard Marquand lacked in not having the Ewoks being so, you know, you know, disgustingly, cloyingly cute. I'm sure he would have hated that, but he also would have spent a lot of time um, on an incestuous brother-sister relationship. <laughs> Lucas simply wanted to downplay that because, you know, it, it it's an absolute plot um, conflict, you know, and, yeah. and he just never wants to talk about it. You know, um, in the in the Lynch film, uh, I mean, he obviously had much less budget than he would have had if he been making Return of the Jedi but I think, like, you know, the, the effects in this, like the movie itself, like the effects are a weird mix. Like some of the effects look great. And, like, for example, I think the worms look great. Yeah, they do. Um, and they the get body a, you get shields. a good sense of scale with the right. worms because they're enormous. And the body shields look great. Um, right. And whereas other, other effects just look cheap. And, for example, the Guild Highliner is obviously a painting. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and not even a detailed, it's just a sort of a small two-dimensional painting that they just superimpose over a star field. And, like, it takes you right out of the movie. You know, I don't even like, oh, like what he did with the painting. navigators. 
and the it just it, it's goofy and he shows he keeps close you know doing those close-ups of the navigator's mouth with the right, which essentially paper. looks like a vagina <laughs> it does <laughs> right <laughs> right like with tentacles stuck on it and it looks right, like a, a fake rubber vagina with some dude's right. finger behind it jj yeah yeah but it uh, doesn't even, yeah it looks like the thing i have in my closet oh wait i uh, just let's talk about that <laughs> But you know, but again, like uh, this, I guess this is my take-home point. Like, like the the good and the bad are so intertwined in this movie. Like, you can't separate them. And like, like you know, you mentioned the Guild Navigator. The Guild Navigator scene is not in the book at all, but it serves as a, a nice point of exposition. And you know, the Navigator. You know, I mean, the, the Navigators are described various ways in the book, and it's not an unreasonable interpretation of how the Navigator looks. Um, but that scene is, you know, that scene is hard to follow and complicated. But it, again, like it has some great moments to it. And for example, the two great scene, two great bits, I think, in the the scene where the emperor meets the navigator is one, emphasizing how different they are that they talk through a translator. You know, like the the guildsman. You know, you hear him go, <laughs> and then it says in this sort of unpleasant voice, "The Benny Jesuit, which must leave." Right. You know, and then the idea that she just goes to the other room and she's monitoring the conversation by telepathy. And the other great little bit in that scene is at the end of the discussion, the guild navigator goes, one small thing. And she and the and the Reverend Mother goes, Here it comes. Like this is the point of the whole meeting. Mm-hmm. Right here. You know, and it's it's the ask to have Paul killed. So again, like those little bits make up for you know, like it's a very weak presentation of the emperor. This guy's supposed to be the emperor of the known universe. And he basically cows in the presence of the navigator, which is a little hard to believe. Yeah, the, the, they spent a lot more time on the navigator's shipping container and entourage than they did on the, the emperor, who's just right. like this one dude. And he comes off as sort of like a buffoon, the mm-hmm. emperor. You know, like it's hard to believe that this guy could be running, you know, the galaxy, the known universe, or whatever. Yep. Um, I like uh, very much the sense of camaraderie among the Atreides. And, like, for example, you get the sense that, you know, like they convey accurately that, for example, Paul has been raised essentially by Gurney Halleck, Thufur Hawat, um, Dr. Dr. Yui. You know, mm-hmm. like he doesn't have friends, like, there's no children for him. And, like, they view him almost as a surrogate son, like, the way that, especially the way, for example, that that Thufir Hawat and, and Gurney Halleck interact with him. I mean, he only interacts with Duncan a little bit. Uh, but, you know, like, it's very warm, and you really feel like they genuinely have affection for each other as people. That comes through very nicely. And they also convey that um, he's the heir to this kind of feudal house, militaristic house, and that it's very different. You know, he has an absolutely abnormal upbringing. It's just he spends all his time training and learning to do that. Right. Training training on all sides. His father, his mother, all of his instructors, you know. I mean, he, mm-hmm. he wears a uniform. You know, he doesn't, yep. he doesn't gallivant does. about the house. I mean, he is wearing a military uniform. Yeah, I don't think he spent a lot of time watching Tom and Jerry. You know? <laughs> no, probably would have helped though. Um, and you know, they only hint. Um, you know, the the Baron is Jessica's father. Thus, the Baron is Paul's grandfather, and that's only touched on in the barest of ways. Whereas it's a major thread in the book. And for example, when Alya kills the Baron at the end, she addresses him as grandfather, mm-hmm. which. Which again, I think makes sense if you've read the book. If you haven't read the book, you know, you could imagine leaning to the person next to you. Did, did they, did she just call him grandpa? What? You know, At that like point, just, people have had enough. They're not even going to ask. <laughs> right. But I mean, like, it's just so many times where you could, you know, you, you just keep losing and losing and losing and losing members of the audi- audience. You know, it's sort of, mm-hmm. and actually, I mean, a modern equivalent for me would be. Uh, Ridley Scott's Prometheus, like it had so many non sequiturs, so much gibberish, so many lost opportunities and dead ends. And I remember by the time like the last thirty minutes of Prometheus rolled around, like I didn't give a crap. Like I was just like, oh my god, when is this over? You know, yeah, I'm surprised like, you got it, that far. 
well, you know, in for a penny, in for a pound. But but it it, it was the same idea. Like they lost me at forty minutes. They're not going to regain me at ninety. You know what I mean? So um, what about so what about um, Yodorovsky? Like you know, so so that he basically the the backstory is that you know Dune was a a big kind of hit book. Uh, well, at least in a, in a cult sense, but made it made a big impact, right? And so, not that long after the, the book came out in 1965, and by the early 70s, people were talking about making a movie. And um, you know, this is also at the time when we, as we've spoken about many times in the past, there was a big boom in science fiction starting in you know in, in the early 70s, late 60s, and at that time. Um, the film was optioned a couple times and wasn't developed. And then it ended up with, um, Yodorovsky's attempt or, or his attempt to make the movie, which never got made, but he spent, he, he, he spent he made, a lot of time on, he spent it. a mean, lot years. of time on pre-production. Yes. He spent years on pre-production and he wrote a, an enormous script apparently that, um, is is in in the in the documentary looked incredible in many it does ways. look incredible and and he changed the story quite a lot but again that's okay mm-hmm. uh like in the in the in his version paul is essentially immaculately immaculately conceived mm-hmm. uh in, in his version leto is sterile and paul is conceived from a drop of blood well I, it's not a far leap because i mean paul the the story of Dune is, is really, I mean, talk about messianic, right? You know, right. I mean, the, the thing is, uh, it, it's very much, uh, in that vein. I mean, he's the, he's the savior. They even have the, you know, a name for him. Um, he's prophesied. He's, he has, you know, I mean, he really, he, he is, uh, the Messiah, right? So I can see that. I mean, in the, in the Yodorowsky documentary, I mean, the movie has a couple of main themes. One is that his version might have been absolutely stupendous. And also that he tipped his hand. You know, he assembles this incredible book. And they show the book many times in the, in the, in the documentary. And I wish that they would release it. I would pay a lot of money to have a copy of the book. This thousand-page book of all the production art, the script, how they should plan to do everything, you know, line for line, shot for shot. And then he showed it all around Hollywood where everybody passed on it, but they had copies of the book. Like he would leave the book with them mm-hmm. and the book just became this enormous source of material essentially to steal. Mm-hmm. Um, he was going to have his son play, play Paul. He was going to have his 12 year old son play Paul. That's right. Um, and I'm telling you, like I was just so, I had never heard of him. I hadn't seen any of his films. But I was just so impressed by like his devotion to his art and the passion with which he was still able to talk about this project decades later. Mm-hmm. Like I'm glad that at least he had his due in the form of this documentary. Yeah. I mean, that's the nice thing, actually. You're absolutely right. The nice thing the fact that when you watch the thing, you, you think like exactly, at least the guy got some recognition from this. Right. For all um, of those years of work. Right. And it's, it's almost like, you know, um, some kind of crazy masterpiece being lost in a drawer, you know, like Bach wrote the, uh, you know, he wrote the Goldberg variations for a uh, patron and then they literally sat in the guy's drawer it sat in a drawer for about like 85 or 90 years until they were never played, you know, like and then somebody finally um, found them, you know, like 90 years later. But And know, again, I don't, and what, we have, what we have now is this documentary and that book, which again has not been released. But I don't know mm-hmm. why they couldn't release it, you know. I'm sure, they, I'm sure that the people who drew the production work would be happy to have it out there. I think that. And it was done Somebody, at a time when they had the right, so they wouldn't even have to worry about that. Look, you know, I mean, this is the golden age of television right now, and somebody should just make the thing. So there's rumors that they are going to do it again. Uh, and, like, for example, I just saw something online that suggested that 
Villana Wave, the guy behind Sicario and the new Blade Runner, might be making um, another version. But who knows? I don't know. Dennis Villana Wave. Villain, I think that's how you say it, but he's, he's apparently talking about making it, but who knows? Who knows? I mean, the problem is, you know, now, like, you know, like that character in, uh, Andalou, you know, who's, who's pulling the piano, uh, you know, like if he decides to do this, like he's got to make this movie recognizing that people have seen the Lynch version. They've seen the John Harrison version. They've read the book. Like, boy, that's hard to wade into as the, third guy to try to do this i don't know i mean maybe maybe they pull it off maybe they don't i don't know yeah it's hard i i don't i wonder if i wonder if they could you know make something close to off of the book you know make something close to jodorowsky's uh yeah, but my suspicion is nobody would want to do that. You know, people. You know, I mean, people want to have their own version. They want to have ownership. Like, why would a big director make someone else's movie? They wouldn't. They're not. But it would have to be. But the thing is, though, in in the land of TV and the golden age of TV, the producers, the king, you know, in TV in general. But I mean, I don't know if they. I guess it's different when you get a you get a guy who um like Steven Soderbergh made the the Nick, you know, um I mean he sort of left film to to go into TV cuz he saw the the sea change and but he he serves as a sort of a, a producer, showrunner, creator, director all around, you know, and and DP all rolled into one. And there are people that do that, but I think a lot of the time you know, you've got Netflix, you've got Obviously, all the traditional cable channels. You've got Amazon, um, right? I mean, Hulu. honestly, I mean, honestly, the perfect. I mean, Netflix or Amazon should make this. You know what right. I'm saying? Like, the mistake is to try to do this again in two hours. Like, like honestly, you could do Dune in twelve hours. You know what oh, I'm yeah. saying? They could do fourteen hours, like his script. You know, I mean, for sure. Uh, and 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 it's that's that's why it fits. Uh, and the other thing is, you know, doing effects is cheaper now in cheaper many ways. Now. Uh, and this is, a, you know, this is a very, very effect heavy, um, project of course. Right. And, but again, you know, you can, I mean, a lot of it is a lot of the movie in the book is just people talking. So it's you interior know, like, shots, right. But you're better off to have a couple of big effect scenes and spend your money on them. And then a lot of it you don't need, like you don't need to have effects in every single scene. No, you just need a sort of good, production design and costume design. That's right. Not, and for, that's and for example, like the, the, the 2000 version was widely criticized for some of its bizarre costume choices. Hmm. Um, like in, in that version, fade is literally wearing what appears to be a kite in several scenes. Like he has a, <laughs> no, I'm not, I'm not making this up. He has what appears to be a kite affixed to the, his back. And, and there's no explanation given why he is walking around with a kite on his back. It's very strange looking. Um, so did Sting reprise his role? <laughs> no one, no one reprised his role. Uh, it's a totally, it's a, and for, and it's interesting because, you know, like, like Kyle McLaughlin looks more like I pictured Paul looking. Whereas in the, the, the Frank Herbert's Dune version, the woman who plays Chani, uh, looks much more the way I envisioned Chani looking than Sean mm-hmm. Young, for example. And that's a woman named uh, Barbara Kodetova, who I've never seen in any other film because uh, she's a Czech actress. So I'm not up on my Czech cinema. Um, but, you know, she looks very much like what you kind of expect. So, like, there's we need some way to sort of, like, put these two movies in a blender, you know, and come mm-hmm. up with, like, a distillation or something that that conveys the two of them better. You know, mm. or convey, conveys the, the idea better. I don't know. It's interesting. Um, but, you know, they're all in in this movie. I mean, like, Ian McNeese, the guy who plays the Baron, I mean, I mean, he throws himself into this thing. I mean, good Lord. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing that Lynch asked him to do that he said no to. 
I mean, there's a scene where the doctor is like aspirating pus out of a sore on his face. Could you imagine? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was not a great idea. Right there. No, it's horrible looking. So a lot of modern audiences may not even realize that he's the guy who plays Winston Churchill uh, on the modern version of Doctor Who. He's played Winston Churchill on a bunch of episodes, but that's the same guy who played mm-hmm. Baron Harkonnen. Um, and he's been in a um, – oh, wait, you know what? Sorry, I'm confusing that. No, 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 I'm not. I'm not. I've got that right. That is the same guy, right? That's Ian McNeese. Mm. Uh, no, 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 hang on. You know what? I'm confusing it. Ian McNeese is the Baron in the Dune 2000 version. Okay. And this, the Baron is played by, I think, Kenneth McMillan. Right. So I'm mixing, I'm, I'm tripping this up and I'm mixing my <clears throat> my Baron Harkonnens. Sorry about that. Um, but yeah, the one from the Dune 2000 miniseries is the guy yeah, who plays Winston was, Churchill. Yeah, it is Kenneth McMillan. Um, but I don't know. I mean, when you went back and watched it, did you enjoy it? Was it fun for you? Were you were you angry at me for having chosen this? <laughs> no, I, like I said, I think it was a little better than I expected because I, was, I had a little trepidation. Going back, I, I really, I don't think, I can't even remember the last time I saw it. Um, but it was better than I remembered. And, I, you know, I think I, I told you why. I think it's because I'm not as close to the, the book anymore. Right. I haven't read the book in a while. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it was, look, it's it's not great. Um but, but it, you it can't, was you can't totally, yeah, you can't totally write it off. And, no, and the no, scenes it, that are fun are fun and worth watching. No, and it was I do, a I do, fair and I, I do like, I even like the end credits, like the way that the end credits are superimposed over water, you know, just to sort of like kind of take you to a, just a different place. And by the way, at the end, when they show the main cast in the credits, it looks like there's still images of the cast as their names appear, they're not still images. They're just standing there. <laughs> like if you watch them carefully, they're moving. Like, I don't, I don't know how they thought to do that, but it's There's interesting. A, that's an interesting waste of film. Yeah, no, it's just, it's just an interesting way to do it. Um, I don't know. I think for me, like it'll always be neither fish nor fowl, you know, like a sort of a glorious failure, yeah. uh, is sort of the way that I would think of this. And you know it didn't it didn't uh, really hurt or at least not not uh, kill Lynch's career because he his career um, you know I mean I guess it, it actually made an upswing after this because Twin Peaks is probably his his uh, high watermark I guess or or what was uh, Blue Velvet maybe maybe but both of them came after this and. Um, so he didn't uh he he still did okay. Yeah, no, I mean he did more than okay. I mean I mean he's had an interesting career and there are whole podcasts that are just devoted to the films of David Lynch. You know, no and he, he does a lot of other stuff. He does a lot of painting and other sort of artwork. I mean, he's done a lot of stuff, David Lynch. Um I mean he's only made like in terms of full length movies, he's only made about ten or so films. Uh, but you know, most of them are pretty serious works that get a lot of attention. You know, uh, I'm right. not a huge David Lynch fan myself. Like, I like this movie. I like Blue Velvet, and I enjoyed Lost Highway. I've never watched Twin Peaks, uh, which I guess is being remade now uh, as a sort of like they're bringing the original cast back and they're doing it. I think for one of the one of the streaming services. But you know, like I've never seen any of that. Maybe I should watch it. I don't think I saw the whole thing. But, you know, I think Mulholland Drive was pretty good from what I remember, although it's been a while. Yeah, you know, if I saw Mulholland Drive, I cannot recall it. Anyway, um, look, the guy, the guy's talented for sure. It's did no you question. notice, by the way, you know, we mentioned Eraserhead very briefly. Um, the guy who starred in Eraserhead, Jack Nance, has an itty-bitty teeny part in Dune. Hmm. Um, he plays Nefud. 
the Baron's Captain of the Guard, who's a much bigger character in the book, but is, is in, I believe, maybe two scenes in this movie and has no discernible dialogue. Hmm. Um, but uh, he's, he's in this, uh, he's in Dune for just a few seconds, but he's featured prominently in the credits. Like, it's interesting, at the end of the movie, when the cast is being, you know, like the main cast gets a photo as the water is going, or not a photo, like I said, a little bit of film, he's one of the people's featured, even though he basically has no dialogue in this movie. But I think that's probably because he was Lynch's friend. Hmm. Um, any other parting thoughts? I mean, you can almost title this, you know, you know, Dune 1984 and Dune 2000, because we did cover the other one, I guess, enough that we roped it in a little bit. But any parting thoughts on this? No, favorite, guess... favorite line, favorite scene, favorite shot? Mm, I don't know. I didn't really think about that. I, I kind of, I think I like the, um, I think they did a good job with the, um, the scene with the box. What's it called again? With the, uh, right. That's that's when it's just referred to as the box where he yeah. where he has to take his his test to yeah, see if with he's the, human with the right the with the reverend mother and reverend mother with the the um gom jabbar or whatever the hell the uh right the needle the needle is called with the poison on it they did a good job with that one i think that one and that that he's very very close to the uh to the book from what i remember I- and and he stays closest to the book earlier on in the script, and as the script goes on, he veers away. I think and, I think that all of my favorite scenes are in the beginning, sort of like that. And I, I don't know if I have a favorite scene, but like my mind often thinks of him fighting the, the battle droid, um, you know, hmm. or the scene where he he shield fights with Gurney again, just sort of showing how these are very different. These are not twentieth century or twenty first century humans. Right, and and I think the uh, they did a pretty good job with the sandworms conveying their size, because uh, there's a couple scenes where they kind of come out of the sand, and um, like eat something, you know, and it's it's right. like a dot when they're like, compared to the sandworm, you know, which is pretty cool. Well, um, and that, and that and they sort of you know they do a good job of that verbally, like for example, the doctor says to Paul before they go, like, "Oh, I've obtained a film book specimen of a small worm. You know, it's only a hundred meters." Mm-hmm. You know, and again, like, you know, that doesn't cost two cents, but it creates such a great image in your mind. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for me, probably favorite, probably favorite line is tough honestly there's a lot of lines i like in this that i'm embarrassed about but there's a lot of lines i like it's probably favorite scene um i think i like the entire sequence where they where the attack happens and and where paul and his mother are captured and smuggled out and and the father bites down the poison tooth like that's to me that's it's so close to the book it's very gripping for me Mm -hmm. and i guess best shot of the movie that's a tough one because there's a lot of good shots in this movie. I'll tell you the worst shot of this movie is when they're <laughs> riding the worm. It looks like, okay, stand on this piece of plastic and we're going <laughs> to rock it back and forth. Like, it looks awful. Yeah, that's a tough one to make look good, though, in their defense. <laughs> yeah, that is a tough one to make look good. In the 2000 version, they did it somewhat similarly, but they did it with more long shots where they would just have sort of like specks on the top of the worm. To mm. convey the size of the worm and the the, dimin- the like the the diminutiveness of the human standing astride it, I'd love to see. You know, I'm thinking about tough shots. You know, and I was thinking about the worm kind of like rotating or the camera rotating to make the worm look like it's rotating as they're riding. Oh, yeah, on it. and so th- that made me think of Kubrick right away, talking about rotating and like. uh can you imagine if Kubrick were a Dune fan? <laughs> he would have built the worm. He would have actually bred the worm. <laughs> he still would have been making the movie. <laughs> right. Right. In another 15 years, we will have bred an actual worm <laughs> 400 meters in size. I'm growing it on my estate in Borum Wood, England. <laughs> I'm, I'm waiting for an F0.0 lens to be invented <laughs> so that I, I can shoot in pitch darkness with one photon. Right. My chemist is hard at work on creating the spice. <laughs> Although that having been said, Kubrick's Kubrick's tune would have been amazing. 
I know. See, he's the guy who could have done it because you have to be kind of nuts, right? Well, and, and, and Kubrick could immerse himself. You know, like right. he could really swim in the waters in the way that a lot of directors couldn't or can't. Right. Because, you know, I guess that's why the book is amazing because you know that Frank Herbert created one of the most intricate universes entirely in his head, internally consistent somehow, at least sort of emotionally. It has a, it has a certain consistency and logic to it, uh, perceptively, okay. right? And in your mind's eye. Right, and, and it's, it's and he puts thoughtful it on paper, and it right? has action. And, you know, I mean, Dune is, people say to me, what is Dune about? And I say, well, it's about religion, politics, ecology, power, drugs, mm -hmm. you know, the economy, transportation. Like, what isn't yep. Dune about? It's about everything. I'm yep. telling you, like, it's, it's you know, like in, in a piece of the action, uh, mm -hmm. this is the original Star Trek episode, um, you know, uh, the, the gangsters, you know, Bella Oxmix and Jojo Cracko, you know, they refer to chicago mobs of the 20 as the book you mm -hmm. know like kirk's like oh look at this book here they're like hey that's not a book that's the book right like that's how i feel about dune like it's the book mm. um right. any any last thoughts or should we wrap it there no let's stop there. I, I i would say a glorious failure how's that yeah, right? it's pretty or, good. Or, or, a, or a wounded success, which is really the same way of saying the same thing. I'd say read the book uh, if you haven't. That would be my advice. Yeah, and then honestly, I would also say stop at the end of the, the true Frank Herbert books. Uh, only if you're a real diehard, read the others. But but uh, the genius is in the, the, the six Frank Herbert novels. And even even if you just read the first one. Although you probably want to keep going. Yeah, there's well, there's stopping points. You can stop after Dune. You can stop after Children of Dune. You can stop after God Emperor Dune. And then if you go past that, you got to read the last. All, All right, right, Peter, that was good. All right, yeah. All right. see you Thank next you, time. And, uh, we'll see you back next time.